All right, so here you have uh, Paul uh, calling together the elders of a church that he had helped establish. He had preached the gospel in Ephesus, and, uh, and disciples had been made, and he had spent a few years there ministering to their needs uh, and to the needs of his team. He had gone about proclaiming, you can see what he says, to both Jews and to Greeks or Gentiles uh, from house to house and in public places. He had been devoted to his ministry to them. And now he knows that because of where the Lord is taking him, he's not going to see them again. And so he's calling these elders together so that he can give them some kind of final words of encouragement and, and admonishment, some warnings even to the elders of the church. And he goes through a list of things here, and there's certain things he's trying to accomplish. He's, first of all, he wants them to remember. There are all kinds of things that he wants them to remember here. He wants them to remember his way of life in verses 18 and 19. He wants them to remember his teaching in verse 20. He wants them to remember his evangelism in verse 21. He wants them to remember his love and his eagerness for them in verse 31. And then finally, he wants them to remember his sacrificial service to them in verses 33 through 35. And he wants them to remember these things because he's trying to, all, all these years, he's been trying to set a faithful example for them, something that they can see with their own eyes that they can follow. So you, you know the phrase that Paul famously said, and we'll paraphrase it, follow me as I follow Christ, right? What you've seen in me, put it into practice. Because Paul knew that he had been devoted to setting an example to them. Now he's calling them to remember that example, his way of life, his teaching, his evangelism, his love and eagerness for them, his sacrificial service for them. He reminded them of all these things in order to show them how they have been prepared for leading and for caring for the flock without him. These are the elders that he's speaking to. Remember, this isn't the entire church of Ephesus that's gathered here, just the leaders, just those men that God had appointed as spiritual leaders over this flock, shepherds, men called to love them and care for them and lead them. And he's saying, look, you've, you've been prepared over these last three years. Remember how you've been prepared and follow that example in Paul's ministry, his race, as he often called it, he had spent these years running with them, helping them, encouraging them, challenging them. It's as if they've been running this race together, hand in hand, towards a finish line, and now he's saying, look, our, our, our race is the same, but now our paths are are going to divert just a bit, and I'll be over here while you continue here, but you have been prepared for this. Now go and run hard, and don't forget who you are and how you've been trained for this moment. So knowing that his race is diverting from their path, he wants them to know they've been prepared and, and listen to what he says they've been prepared and entrusted to. He says, by God and his gospel, his word of grace. God's word of grace is what has prepared them to run this race faithfully. We also know that years later as an old man, Paul was confident that he really had run his race and he had finished his course. 
In 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Don't you want to be able to say that? As an old person, even as a young person, I want to be able to say all of that except for the finished part, right? I don't feel that I'm finished yet, but I want to be able to say I'm fighting the good fight, I'm finishing my race, I'm keeping the faith, And one day, like Paul, I want to be able to say, I fought, I finished, I kept. I know that's all of our desire. If you're gathered here for the Lord Jesus, for his glory, because of your faith in him, then that's your desire. And Paul was telling these church leaders, you've been prepared to continue fighting, to finish your race, to keep the faith. Now that Paul has fulfilled his ministry to the church in Ephesus, notice where his hope lies for them. Mentioned it a second ago. But imagine him now as this father. If you're a parent at all, or you've been in a position of leadership over some people and responsible for them, then you may be able to kind of tap into what Paul is experiencing here, his fatherly heart. Imagine him handing his children off to another caretaker. I, I don't know exactly what that would feel like, although I am uh, on my way out of the church that I planted about eight years ago, and so in a way I have a bit of a fatherly role at Genesis Church over in spring, and now leaving that church and being sent out by them, I feel a bit like I'm letting go of their hand as well. Maybe you can identify in some way with what that would feel like. Here he is entrusting them to the care of God. You can see there he says that he is commending them in verse 32. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. He's entrusting them handing them over, letting go of their hand and placing their hand now completely in the hand of God without him there to guide them. It's a difficult thing that Paul was doing. It was, it was a, a goodbye of sorts, but it was also this kind of transfer of leadership. Of all these things that Paul was saying to them, I mean, we could go back through the list and we could point out so many lessons. I mean, wouldn't there just, it feels like there's a dozen sermons here, doesn't it? All these things that Paul says to them, the warnings that he gives, the kind of prophetic uh, warnings that he gives, even I know that fierce wolves are going to rise up from among you, even from among your own number. What a scary thing to say. There's probably so many things we could say about that, these things that he says about his example of his teaching, of his evangelism, of his way of life, all these things that he called them to remember. There's just so much here that could be said. But I told you, I gave you my word that I was going to speak to you about the thing that I believed was the most important. How do you pick out what's most important in a list like this? I know. I mean, this is really the longest speech given from a Christian to other Christians in the entire book of Acts. There's no other place where you hear a church leader speaking this many words all together to Christians to teach them in the book of Acts. How do you pick out one thing and call it most important? It almost seems crazy. And yet I feel like we can do it this morning. 
I really believe that there's one thing here that Paul says that really is, is above all the other things, and all the other things are pointed towards that one thing that he said for them, and that's what I want to focus your attention on this morning. So I'm going to ask for you to look at verse 22 with me. We're going to start there, and we're going to read just 22 through 24, and then... Uh, and then try to explore the idea that Paul is introducing. Now it's interesting that this is the most important thing that he said, the most important example that he said, because uh, really here he's not trying to remind them of something, he's trying to prepare them for something. Something that hasn't happened yet. Verse 22, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Now let's stop for just a minute and let's point out why that's so crazy. Because Paul had a lot of enemies in the world and most of them lived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, was the epicenter of the Jewish faith, uh, of devotion to the law. It's where Paul himself became a Pharisee. And, and all the Pharisees and Sadducees, religious rulers of the Jews, were centered there in Jerusalem where the temple was, and it was the, the center of all worship to the one God that the Jews worshipped. Paul had become now a disciple of this Jesus, and he had, in the eyes of the Pharisees and the religious rulers in Jerusalem, become state enemy number one. He was going around the whole world from synagogue to synagogue, and not only to the Jews, but also to Gentiles, poisoning their minds with this good news about a Jesus who was raised from the dead and who had fulfilled the law on their behalf so that it wasn't through their own righteousness that they would be saved, but through belief in the righteousness of this Savior, this Messiah who had come, and this to them was intolerable so intolerable that they were willing to silence by force those who were preaching this message. In fact, Paul himself had been the chief of the silencers. But now he had changed jerseys, right? He swapped jerseys and now he's on this other team and they are lying in wait for him, ready to stop him and silence him at any cost, even at the cost of his own life. So for him to be headed towards Jerusalem, really doesn't sound like he's just going home or he's going to go visit friends or he's got some more work to do. It sounds like Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem, knowing he's going to be crucified there because of the good news he's preaching, and all of his disciples going, why would you go to Jerusalem? It's the one place you shouldn't be. If you go there, you're a dead man. Now, now let that familiarity with going to Jerusalem just rest with you as you hear Paul saying, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Constrained by the Spirit. In bondage to the control of the Spirit. He had no choice in it. He knew very clearly that the Spirit was telling him, go to Jerusalem. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. There's the uncertainty of will they imprison me or will they kill me? But the one thing he does know is verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment 
and afflictions await me. He knows what he's facing here. He's going in eyes wide open. The Holy Spirit tells me everywhere I go that I'll either be imprisoned or afflicted in some other way. You know Paul's story. Most of you, if you have any familiarity, you guys have been going through the book of Acts. All of the imprisonment, the torture, the beatings, the stonings, dragged around cities, left for dead. Paul had suffered so much and the Holy Spirit had made it very clear that this was going to be what happened. Even from the, from the minute that Paul even became a Christian, you remember what Jesus was telling the other disciples, don't worry, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. And this became the legacy of Paul. So he wasn't surprised at all that he would suffer in Jerusalem because this is what was happening in every city that he traveled to. Except that Jerusalem is where Jesus ended his journey and I think Paul thought maybe that's where I'll end mine. but this isn't some kind of solemn farewell. He's not preaching his own funeral here. Look at verse 24. But in contrast to everything you may be feeling about me going to Jerusalem, in contrast to all the emotions and all of the protectedness you may feel towards me as a kind of fatherly figure, the one who introduced you to Jesus, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, in case that flew over your head because the coffee hasn't kicked in or or whatever. Let's read verse 24 again. I want you to hear a human being with limitations, with failures in his past, with weakness in his flesh, an imperfect human being seeking to follow Christ. I want you to hear a human being say these words but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We know that Paul had received a ministry from the Lord Jesus. We know it because the Bible tells us. We're not unaware of what that ministry is to testify to the grace of God in Christ, the gospel. He was a gospel preacher. He was an apostle. He was one sent by Jesus to go to the nations to make Christ known to them that they might see Christ for who he is, believe on him, and be saved from the penalty of their sins, saved by the righteousness of Christ, credited to them as a gift. We're not unaware of what his ministry is, but I think sometimes we may be detached a bit from how wholeheartedly and single-mindedly Paul was devoted to this ministry. So devoted that he was willing at a moment's notice to give up his life for it. Why? Why? Because Jesus is worth his life. His life, in fact, he even says, is of no value. 
of no value if it's not focused on this one purpose. If all of his life is not about the glory of Christ, then his life is not worth anything. Now I realize this morning that is an extreme statement. It is an extreme thing to say that if all of life is not about the glory of Christ, then it is not a worthy life. I realize that is an extreme statement from Paul. But here's the thing. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. His devotion really, in in light of who Christ is, his devotion here is not actually extreme. It's appropriate. It's just appropriate. If it feels extreme to us, and I'm, I'm with you, if it does, it only feels extreme because we haven't reached a level of understanding about the worthiness of Christ that Paul had reached. Through his suffering, through the trials that he had faced, through trusting the Lord in his weaknesses, he had come to a place of realization about the worthiness of Christ. And in light of the worthiness of Christ, his own life was such an expendable resource to him. So expendable, so worth spending on the glory of Christ the ministry that he had received from Christ, the gospel of Christ. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life. I do not account breathing. I do not account any of my relationships, any of my experiences, any of my wisdom, my knowledge. I do not account my life of any value, of any value. You remove Jesus from him and the ministry that he's received from Christ, from his life, and he zeroes out in terms of value. It's what Paul believed about his own self nor as precious to myself. Not something to be clung to, not something to protect, not something to guard and withhold from danger. No, it's to to go flinging out into the world for the glory of Christ, happen what may. If Christ is honored, it was worth it. If he receives just an ounce of glory from my entire existence, it's worth it. All of life for the glory of Christ, or there is no value to life. It sounds extreme, but it's really just appropriate. This was not a a distinct teaching just to the Ephesian elders. Paul had been saying this all along, everywhere he went. You're very familiar with some of the passages where he, he nearly quotes himself Philippians 1 verses 19 and 20, he makes some really familiar statements. In fact, I'm going to ask you to even turn there with me. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. We'll start with yes of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He was in prison again. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. If I live, it's ministry for Christ. If I die, it's union with Christ. Impenetrable. Untouchable. All is Christ. So life lived for him is all worth it. Now look over into chapter 2. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2 to the Philippians. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Even if his life is just poured out like an offering, wasted for their sake, that they might grow in Christ, know him, love him, follow him. It's worth it to him that Christ would be magnified in them. Now look over at chapter 3, verse 8. Maybe the most directly linked to what we're reading here in Acts chapter 20. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count them all as trash. He didn't give any categories here. It's either Christ or it's trash to him. (laughs) What do you do with a guy like that? There's all these things like, well, what about your family, man? What about your friends? What about all these things that are really important in life? Yeah, they're good. I'm not saying they're not good, but compared to Christ, they're trash. They're, they're just, I'll, I could just toss them to the side compared to Christ and his worthiness. I know it sounds extreme, but the more you know Christ, the more you realize it's just appropriate. There's so many other verses we could go to. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Colossians chapter 1. All these places where Paul is nearly quoting what he said here in Acts chapter 20 about the supreme worthiness of Christ even to the detriment of his own life. And this, I believe, is the most important thing that Paul said to the Ephesian elders. I believe it's the most important example that he set for them. It wasn't his reminders, it wasn't his warnings, it wasn't his prophecies to them that I believe set the most rock-solid, firm, and faithful foundation for them to look to and stand upon. Instead, it was him saying, I know that they might kill me in Jerusalem, but listen, absolutely worth it for the sake of Christ. There's no doubt in my mind I'm going, compelled by, constrained by the Spirit, and I'm glad to go because it's for Christ. He's worth it. So that later on then, when when savage wolves, fierce wolves arose among them and tried to destroy the flock, what did they absolutely know from Paul? This battle is worth it. This battle is worth it for the sake of Christ. That his name would be magnified 
that he would be exalted, that he would be savored, worshiped, enjoyed. It's all worth it. Now, when we talk about an example like this, it's, it's so easy to look at the life of Paul and just be like, okay, but that was Paul. All right, so chill. That was Paul. He was different. He was crazy. He's Paul. And we put Paul into this kind of superhuman category and his entire testimony is like sitting out on its own as some special thing that God did that he was never going to do again. And I'm going to invite you this morning to just reject that idea. I'm not saying that you're going to become an apostle to the nations, that you will be dragged outside of cities and stoned. I'm not claiming to know this morning that any of you is going to spend a night and a day on the sea. But what I do know is that the devotion that Paul had to this all-worthy Christ was from the Spirit in him, the same Spirit that you received when you believed in Christ. It's the devotion to Christ is coming from the Spirit in Paul, the Holy Spirit of Christ, consuming him with passion for the glory of Christ. And there is nothing in the scriptures that says you shouldn't expect the same in your own life, in your own calling, in your own ministry. But here's what we do. Here's the danger, the trap, okay? If there's any trap here that we may fall into, it's hypothesizing. This is what we always do with passages like this. We see what Paul's saying and we're like, amen, absolutely. If I'm ever in a situation like that, that's how I want to respond. And we begin hypothesizing. If this were to happen, if somebody were to do this, if I was faced with a situation like that, if something similar to what Paul was facing, all right, so here's what we do. All of a sudden it turns into the last night of youth camp. You guys ever been to youth camp? Any church kids here? Did I hear a whoop? Okay, I'll take it. It's what we always do where it's like, like we, we, we grow in intensity and we come to this place where we want to create some hypothetical situation where we're going to be faithful and question ourselves. And I'm not saying there's no value to this, okay? There's, in fact, even in our own home this week, we had some big hypothetical kind of discussions about what ifs. All right, and, there, and that has its place. But if you take what Paul's saying here and you begin to just hypothesize about how you might be faithful in extreme circumstances like the classic one, last night of youth camp, they put a gun to your head. Deny Jesus or die. What do you do? Right? You've all been there. You've all played the Christian Russian roulette. All right? You've all done that where you hypothesize about your own level of faithfulness in extreme circumstance, facing persecution. What are you going to do? If your life is at stake, all right, your life is on the line and you have to decide, are you going to save your life or are you going to lose it for the sake of Christ? Do you believe he's worth it? Now, like I said, there's some value to that. I think we should be willing to put ourselves in that place and really test our hearts, examine our hearts with the Lord and go, Spirit, please prepare me 
Help me to be so faithful today, today, that if I was in that kind of situation, if our culture devolved so terribly that Christians are faced with that kind of situation, that I would be faithful in it. I hope so. I hope so. I hope that I would be so devoted to Christ that even in that wild hypothetical scenario, not Paul's situation, but ours compared to ours today, I hope I would be faithful. But here's the trap. The trap is that we only hypothesize about this level of devotion and we never actually live it out. That's the trap. Because I believe that Satan's Satan's most brilliant tactic against the American church is to just leave us alone. Just leave us alone. Make us as comfortable as possible. Why would you, why would you risk all that? You can love Jesus right over here in your comfy little life with your comfy little routine surrounded by all your comfy situations and everybody knows you love Jesus and Jesus loves, knows you love Jesus and it's fine. Why would you be this kind of extreme radical person? That's for special people like Paul. That's for spe- that level of devotion that level of just flying into the world with your life on the line, whatever happens to me is absolutely worth it because Christ is worthy of all. That level of devotion really just isn't, that's, that's not for you. There's no reason why you would risk all that. You can live a nice, happy, comfortable Christian life right where you are. So Satan just leaves us alone and just lets us have all of our money and conveniences and comforts and and. Here we are faced with the biggest problem of all. Apathy. Apathy. Is Christ really worth it? The big hypothetical trap. If that were to happen to me, then I hope I would fill in the blank. But listen, let's be real with each other. How many of you in your entire life have ever faced physical threats because of your devotion to Christ? I haven't. How many of you have ever even been openly ridiculed? Maybe some more. Maybe you've been insulted. Maybe you've been looked down upon. But what Paul is facing here, nearly certain death, if he follows Christ, this kind of situation is at at a minimum rare, almost unheard of in our daily lives. If you live in this Woodlands, Magnolia, Spring, Tomball, Conroe area, it is just almost impossible to imagine that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning ready to live your regular life and that all of a sudden persecution is going to break out against you and you will be faced with a situation that you've been hypothesizing about for years where someone puts a gun to your head and tells you to either deny Jesus or die. Please tell me, do you really think that that's going to happen? Prophetic words this morning? What we know is going to happen 
is that we're going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to have a very normal feeling life where you have jobs and kids and, and decisions to make about what to do with your money. How hard are you going to work? How many believers do you know? Are they ever going to hear about Jesus? These are the kinds of decisions that you're going to be faced with that your devotion to Christ is going to be tested against, is going to be measured against, not a gun to your head. Your actual life that God has given you. So my encouragement to you this morning is to not hypothesize about this level of devotion to Christ where we see him as all-worthy, as majestic and beautiful, as, as owning us. In a double sense, he created us and he died for us so that we would no longer be stuck in our sins, but freed from them to live a life that is worthy of the calling we've received in him. This is the Christ we know and love and worship and sing songs about, and he is worthy of your devotion to the end of your life tomorrow. Tomorrow at your job, tomorrow in your home, tomorrow in your social circles. He is worthy of this level of devotion. What are the consequences? If it's not to go and risk your life in Jerusalem, what are the actual consequences of you faithfully following Jesus tomorrow? I'm asking you to really explore that, to think of what that answer is. Like, if I don't follow him, it'll look like this. And if I do follow him, it'll look like this. What kind of consequences might there be? And do we believe that it's worth it? That it's worth it to face those consequences for the sake of Christ? Can we say with Paul the same kinds of things that he said? Can we say with him, that we do not account our lives of any value nor as precious to ourselves if only we may finish our course and the ministry that we received from the Lord Jesus, which is the same ministry that he had received to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is our shared collective ministry, the ministry of Christ's church to be his ambassadors in the world. For you, it looks like this. For you, it looks like this. It plays out in this neighborhood, in this job, with these children, with this spouse, with this community, with these nations. For all of us, we're living out a common calling to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. We've received this calling. Will we be devoted to it even to the end of our lives, whether our lives in tomorrow or a hundred years from now? And, and the real question at the end of all of it comes down to this. The most important thing about all of it do we understand how worthy Christ is? That's what it comes down to. He is worthy. 
He's as worthy as, as his disciple John wrote as an old man seeing visions of heaven with, with magnificent creatures and all the elders gathered around the throne and multitudes of multitudes, myriad of angels gathered around, all pointed at Jesus saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is Christ to receive honor and praise and authority and majesty and wisdom and might. Worthy is Christ. He is as worthy as the scriptures say he is. But do we understand? Do we believe? Are we devoted to the truth of how worthy Christ is? And how does that change tomorrow? growing in our understanding of the worthiness of Christ, how does that change how you live tomorrow? What kind of decisions will you actually make? Not hypothetical, actual. Actual decisions in keeping with the truth of the worthiness of Christ. So I, I told you that my, my goal, that I, I was asking the Lord, hoping that the Lord would accomplish this morning was that all of us would be able to see from Paul's life, from his example, his testimony, his faith, what is the most important thing in all of life. And after examining it, do we not see that the most important thing in all of life is Christ himself? And the most important thing that we can do about the most important thing in all of life is make faithful decisions in keeping with the truth of his worthiness. It's the most important thing we can do. So I want to invite you this morning to make faithful decisions in keeping with the truth of the worthiness of Christ above all of life. If all of us devote all of our life to Christ, there won't be a regret in the room when the story is ended. Not one regret in the room. Let's ask God for some help.